You're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. This is Chris Evans, and I'm here today with one of the co-founders of Calyptia, Anurag Gupta. Anurag, how are you doing? Doing awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I mean, we had a conversation a few weeks ago, didn't we? There's a little bit of a briefing. I thought it might be a great opportunity to come back and tell people what you do. So why don't you kick off, give us a bit of an introduction about your company and the background to the sort of products you work with? Absolutely. So Anurag, again, as, as you mentioned, I've been in the observability space or uh, IT space for the pr- past 10 years. Uh, got the opportunity to start my career at Microsoft, uh, a bit in an odd section of that company. I was in the Unix and Linux team at Microsoft under Steve Ballmer. Um, and okay, that, wow, okay, yeah, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> that was the the big thing. And with with Satya Nadella taking over the the company while I was at Microsoft, got to see this whole shift uh, within the company to focus more on. On Linux. In fact, we had this really nice slide that said Microsoft loves Linux, and that would always give you a a, a bunch of hmm, ha, huh, and <laughs> from from the Linux folks. Um, but that was my startup career. Uh, loved it as part of System Center, uh, which was monitoring and management. Uh, moved into Azure Log Analytics uh, within the Azure team, and uh, then switched into enterprise open source at Treasure Data, um, where I got to manage the FluentD project. Uh, which we'll talk a little bit about here today, and I'm excited to. And uh, after that, got to switch over to Elastic, uh, do a lot of Kubernetes strategy over there, uh, work on government, cloud, as well as uh, just general orchestration, which was which was awesome. And yeah, then started Cliptia here late 2020, and we are a uh, telemetry pipeline company built off of the two open source projects, FluentD and FluentBit. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Eduardo, he's the creator of the open source project. Today, we are um, about a couple dozen of us working on building out this really great telemetry pipeline platform for a number of, of enterprise customers. Perfect. That's a great introduction. Thank you. So I just want to go back and touch on that whole thing about Microsoft and the idea of Microsoft loving Linux. And I think, you know, go back 10 years and you'd be like, really under Steve Barmus, you know, well, I, I think he said some fairly nasty things about Linux at the time. But actually, since then, the I think the cloud side of things has really changed Microsoft's view because they've had to embrace it because of that. And I, I definitely think the way that now things like are embedded into Linux is embedded into Windows and things like that. It is a very different landscape to the one we would have seen 10 years ago. And that makes just generally, you know, our industry, industry interesting, I think. Yeah, it was uh, amazing to watch, watch that. And, and I think, yeah, we were sequestered into a corner a little bit and, and more of a checkbox type of team to make sure things worked. And, if you need to do management of IBM, AIX, HPUX, Solaris, Red Hat, Celeste with Microsoft products, we had the know-how on how to do it. But as cloud became the forte and prevalent way of Microsoft's go-to-market, you could see the whole organization saying, we need more Linux experts. And you know, thankfully, our team existed to kind of help uh, 
hey, this is how we think of packaging. Here's how we think of signing packages in Linux or how management in Linux might work. So that was, again, a great, great opportunity for me. Um, I got to learn both sides, uh, if you will. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So tell us about uh, FluentD then. Tell us what the, the platform, the product, the solution, what it actually is and what it's doing. It's just at a high level, and that will sort of uh, let us dig into a bit more of the observability and monitoring discussion. Sure, sure. Yeah, so FluentD is about a 12-year-old project now. It's a, it's definitely definitely hit it, hit its stride and it really is meant to solve one key problem how do you build something that's agnostic to the end destination and what i mean by that is any company is going to have multiple sources whether it's log files applications servers containers and you don't want it to only route to a single end destination you might have logic that you want to send half the data to a data lake half the data to a log analytics backend, and maybe you want to dump uh, another portion of the data uh, and just, it's garbage, it's not useful at all. So FluentD really was one of the first projects that said, let's go solve this challenge and let's go do it with Ruby and let's do it in a pluggable way. So for instance, if we're looking at observability as we see it nowadays, we talk about well, it used to be called monitoring when I, when I was younger, but obviously now we call it observability for some reason. But if you've got a, a disparate set of platforms, you potentially have many, many data sources. And what I think you're implying here is that you're almost making FluentD a data router that says, this is what I'd like to do with this data because it's quite useful for me, so we'll push it that direction. Other stuff, as you said, you might drop, other stuff you might push to another platform. But it allows you to, I guess, do that for want of a better term data routing with data that's coming out of an observer observability model yeah 100 percent correct and uh you know uh, the way i like to think about monitoring and observability and i'll use my my system center days is monitoring we had very set things we looked for we know cpu is important so we're looking at that every minute we know that disk space is important we're looking at that every minute now those things haven't changed but because of complexity of applications, where they're deployed, what they're doing, there's all other sorts of things that can go wrong with connections or how an app might call another app or how an app might call another end service that we don't know everything to look for. And observability, I think, takes that monitoring specificity and says, hey, let's go look at this holistically. Let's make sure that in the case we don't know what went wrong, we still have that data somewhere so we can take a look. It's a great way to go solve a problem, but at the same time, if you are capturing every single little thing, it becomes a huge data problem. And while FluentD makes it easy to send all that data, you know, at the same time, do you need all that data? There's a lot of junk, a lot of junk out there. And FluentD when it was built was more to get that data into multiple locations. And if we look at that problem today, it's uh, FluentD and, and it's kind of faster, younger counterpart FluentBit are more geared towards, let's now give you more control over that data to reduce, remove, redact, route um, as you need. That's a good point. And I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, when you collect data from an operating system, when you collect data from many different sources, actually, it's almost an infinite 
scenario where you could just create collectors for almost anything you could possibly think of you know i'll collect the temperature or i'll collect the temperature on this device or i'll collect you know the traffic coming on this network port or this application or this container or this and it gets it gets down to all of those granular levels where any single instance of an application or piece of code or anything might be tracked you might be looking at a whole range of things so you're right there's a big piece of uh, i think the puzzle here that says somehow you've got to go from a mass of all of this data to somehow picking out the things that are going to be important but actually you don't want to be dropping things that aren't important so you have to sort of have some sort of system to, uh, to, to help you do that i guess yeah yeah the, we don't know what we don't know i think is the the phrase that i like to use with observability and when something goes wrong and you follow, you know, a very standard method of checking all the dashboards, checking all the alerts, and you're like, I, I don't know. Then you, you know, there's this panic that will set in. And hopefully, if you have a good observability practice or at least a, a set of data that you've been collecting, now you have other places to go investigate, triage, diagnose with, uh, where you might otherwise have just been blind and say, we don't know, reset everything, right? So, in terms of data sources, then. Typically, what are we expecting we're going to collect? The obvious ones to me seem like logs, but we, we see new technology like eBPF coming along and you know there's an ability to take uh, metrics from different sources within an operating system. Windows is a good example through things like Windows Management in, um, Instrumentation or whatever it was called back in the, you know, when, when it, I don't know if it's still called that, but you could pull out, yeah, you could pull out a huge number of um, pieces of data out of that and in fact, uh, passing the tree and seeing what you could find you could go oh i can i can do that and i can get that you know th there's a lot of different sources so what typically do are people sort of feeding in from yeah great great question so it's very much uh as you said logs is the big bulk of of all the sources and more recently within the broader fluent ecosystem which now contains fluent bit we've added the ability to capture prometheus metrics um so we looked at what users wanted to collect and they might have four to five agents on a box and they said, you know, if I could just use one, I would. And if you can add these capabilities that captures metrics in a format that I am familiar with and able to use, we'll be happy to, to do that. So back in 2020, early, early 2021, we added Prometheus scraping, Prometheus node exporter, um, and more recently, traces have started to become a big thing as well, where you might instrument your application with logs, metrics, and traces using standards like OpenTelemetry. So last year, we added OpenTelemetry support for all three data types. Um, so those are, are definitely heavy on the observability side. And on the networking side, we also see a ton of syslog. You know, one of the things that continues to grow is our firewall and as security posture increases, we need to look at every single interaction. So syslog is, that's a great standard protocol. It does have its bells and whistles with the different RFCs, but that's another big, big source. And I think one of the more recent sources that's starting to pick up, you mentioned eBPF, profiling data, um, but also cloud SaaS. Um, so if I'm running my service and I'm using something like a single sign-on provider or even a online code store like a GitHub, for example, there's logs and audit trails that are important that are relevant to an observability diagnosis or troubleshooting. 
um, aspect that you want to capture as well. And that's something a little newer, but we're starting to see that come, come about as well. The SaaS side is quite an interesting one because the first thing that sort of strikes me is there's a, a scenario that says that you have to rely on the SaaS provider choosing to export that data or make that data available to you. So that's you know that one that's one side of it. There's another side that says they might they might want to or not want to export that data because that might expose inconsistencies, issues, exploits within their environment. But at the same time, you could balance that by saying, in actual fact, they should be exposing that data to you because you're now sort of heavily reliant on some of those platforms to run your business. And therefore, some sort of insight into how those platforms are working could be incredibly interesting. So there's an in, there's a, you know quite a balance between getting that level of how much data they give you right, I think. 100%. And uh, you know, when I was at Azure, we were facing kind of the very start of that where we said, well, users are moving their applications, big critical applications like SQL Server or their payment systems into, into cloud. And while infrastructure as a service lets you preserve a lot of that, if you're using a PaaS or even a service variant of those, how do you get your, your logs? Um, how do you make sure that all the things that you were checking for before are gonna be applicable here. Um, and so it, this is maybe six, seven years ago, we started with saying, here are some application packs uh, for those services. Here's how you can connect via the cloud to your central workspace. And I think now SaaS providers are starting to see that same critical integration. And yeah, they are starting to enable in their very large enterprise tiers, those ability to export and view all of the different interactions that are happening within a SaaS. So the, yeah, I think a newer data source, but one that is super important. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, let's talk more about Fluent D and uh, Fluent Bit. And why don't you take us through what the two products are and how they differ from each other and you know why we've got two? Yeah, 100%. So again, Fluentd, a bit, bit old, 12 years, and uh, was really starting to see a lot of popularity in, in 2015, right around you know, Kubernetes first being open sourced. Uh, and as part of that, the founders of Treasure Data, which is the company that had created and sponsored Fluentd originally, saw this need for a, at the time, a similar experience of uh, vendor agnostic collection and routing for embedded Linux. And this was that IoT era, if you recall, where, oh, yes. wow, yeah, <laughs> we've got to collect data from fridges and network devices and wind turbines. And in order to make something even lighter weight than Fluentd, which was written in Ruby, still a pretty light profile comparatively to other Java-based log collectors at the time. It was written in Fluentbit was written in full C. So in 2015, my co-founder Eduardo wrote the first iteration of Fluentbit in in C. And it just so happens that the profile of embedded Linux and the performance characteristics that you want in embedded Linux work wonderfully for containers as well. And so within you know a matter of a couple of years, we saw Fluentd. Uh, continue to rise in popularity, but Fluentbit also start to grow very, very heavily, especially in that containerized ecosystem. 
And FluentBit now today is where a lot of the innovation is happening. So the open telemetry side, Prometheus side, uh, WebAssembly, the integrations with other agents that are collecting eBPF data like Tracy, all of that is happening within uh, FluentBit um, as where we're, we're investing a lot of the, the open source time and resources. And what's the overhead? I mean, you, you deployed this on many systems, you know, typically just to collect that data, what sort of overhead would you expect to see? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. Uh, the first nice thing about FluentBit is it's been deployed a bit over 5 billion times now. So all the Docker deployments, not, this is not including packages, by the way, which also represent a couple million per day. It is something that uses on a lightweight log stream, so something around 100 to 1,000 events per second, maybe less than 5 megs of memory and maybe less than 0.2% of one CPU. It's meant to be super, super lightweight. And I'm sure there are users out there who have optimized it uh, e even further, just more speaking from a very general sense of the defaults. So. It's I think that's sort of fairly important. Yeah, and that is important because the last thing you want to do is to find that you're doing no useful work because all the overhead components and running an operating system are suddenly taken over. And especially in the way that we moved into the containerized world, where if you think, you know, that part of the whole benefit of that was to push away the fact that in virtualization we were running multiple operating systems on a single physical server and to say, let's just run one operating system. The last thing we wanted to do was start building container pods where we had all these sidecars in that were collecting data that were then spewing that data out and taking as much overhead as the application itself. So I think the lightweight side of it is a, is a key factor for people should be looking at. Yeah, and, and I think when folks hear sometimes that it's lightweight, they are also scared that it doesn't, it can't do the heavyweight job. Um, but that's right. absolutely not the case either. You know, we've tested FluentBit continuously at 140 megabytes bytes uh, per second on less than less than four core machines sending to authenticated OAuth sources uh, OAuth destinations. So that's a little bit of a heavier lift of encryption and making sure that we're speaking the right protocol to that endpoint. Uh, and that runs maybe 24 seven. So the great part about FluentBit as well is it's adopted by major cloud providers. So. Google with an ops agent, um, Amazon within its AWS for FluentBit distribu upstream distribution, uh, and even Microsoft within its uh, Mariner distribution of, of its own Linux, you'll find FluentBit present. So really high uh, amount of deployments, really high scale just from some, a lot of the performance improvements we've put in, um, and the ability to, to do that transformation if you need it because you have the spare capacity, uh, which is great. I think perhaps the term lightweight is a bit unfair. We should say light touch, uh, low impact. You know, maybe there should be a, a new term we come up with rather than that. I think that that would be that would be helpful. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So we've taken all this data. We've got the ability now to do something with it. Is the way that we set up FluentD and FluentBit to build policies, rules around how we process that data? Is there now a centralized place where that task is occurring or is this a distributed task that is a set of policies that are applied on each of the platforms that we are collecting from normally how would that sort of setup look great great question 
So for virtual machines, it's a package that gets installed. There's some default configuration that's present. There's a lot of built up user knowledge on how to collect certain log files, how to parse uh, those certain log files. Uh, we, we ship quite a few parsers out of the box. And from a management perspective, you know, we've tried to plug into what a user might already have. So if they have a configuration management system, um, there are some community-built recipes uh, out there for, say, like a Chef or Ansible or SaltStack or uh, Puppet on, on how to go, go about those things. On the Kubernetes side, when we deploy FluentD or FluentBit, typically that gets deployed as what's called like a daemon set. And so if we think of Kubernetes as a cluster made of multiple nodes, we will have at least one instance of that FluentBit or FluentD running on each of those nodes, collecting all the data from every application on that node. Um, and that's really why FluentBit is, is so important for these type of Kubernetes environments as you think about the container density, which represents how many apps you might run on top of a single Kubernetes node. Three, four years ago, that number might have been maybe 10, 15 max. Today, you can get up to like 200, 300 apps on a single node if you've provisioned it correctly. So each of those apps are generating monstrous amounts of data, and you need to be able to reliably collect that at scale. So that that's one area where deploying with the daemon set can simplify config across everything, make it make it super simple. And of course, as a, as a plug to to Calyptia, you know, this our our company built out of these open source projects. Some of the value we bring on top of these open source projects are UI management layer and allowing you to centrally configure, manage, um, especially on the Kubernetes side. Right. So that's interesting. So that if you look at the ability to say enterprise scale a, pl a platform like this and roll it out in a way that an enterprise could look at it and say, I need somewhere where I can centrally do this. I need some security controls behind it. I need to manage the policies and who can do that. That's what you're giving as a company, pr pretty much that, that ability to take this and put this in an enterprise and manage the way that the, the deployment works. Exactly. Exactly. We. We think of all of the hardships that we've seen with Fluentd and Fluentbit over the years uh, and things that are more nice to have, right? So key things like performance, high scalability, uh, integration with open standards, those are all open source. And we're very strong on, on making sure that remains open source and available to all. But the policy, the governance, the management, the auto healing, the one-click scaling, UI, those are things that we've put into our, our enterprise version and, and services. You know, thinking about, say, security and the other aspects of how you would manage this sort of probably what you can describe as very sensitive data. You know, this this potential that the state is very sensitive to any organization. You you really do need to think hard about that governance side because you certainly don't want to be letting people take copies of it or shipping it to to somewhere to be analyzed when that you know you're not really trusting that client. So there has to be that governance in that middle point, I think. Yeah, hundred percent and and what we find, especially with some of our large enterprise customers that are in the financial sector or within regulated industries is they have the desire to make sure that no data is leaked. 
but a lot of the solutions out there are after the fact or once that data arrives into a central location doing the redaction or removal of that data. And so from our side, we can add those rules immediately. So if we see a pattern that matches a particular credit card number or um, a particular user, we can remove that immediately at basically at source. So that way it doesn't ever get stored or processed. Because if you think about modern data systems in a good way, if you send that data to one disk and it gets redundantly backed up four to five different places, those are four to five different exposure points of of that personal data um, uh, being replicated. So let's remove it from ever hitting that. Um, and that's really where, we're, where we find a lot of our enterprise users leveraging the open source and our enterprise tools on top to say, let's get a full control over this and, and let's make sure that none of this, this ever leaks. It's interesting. So, you know, we, we talk about things like zero trust and the ability for only certain applications to talk to others. And then we want to encrypt data in flight and we want to encrypt data at rest. And we want to put in, for instance, uh, you know, there's a, I recorded something last week where we were talking about client-side encryption for MongoDB so that the data that's in the database isn't visible to anybody because it's, pre it's pre-encrypted before it even hits the database. It does seem like it would be a bit of an own goal to allow data to come out of a system that hasn't been anonymized, cleaned, tidied, sorted, and otherwise manipulated to make sure it's anonymized before it leaves that server because otherwise you've just broken all the rules of all the other things that you're doing as well so you know this needs to be sitting in there doing exactly the same thing and, and really what i found really interesting with logs is we are super secure about our application appsec making sure that our containers or images don't have any vulnerabilities but in a log it's super simple to mess up a variable name and accidentally release out a username, password, whatever it may be, and it just gets slurped up um, because that's how the, the systems are configured. So you having something that can set these policies ahead of time does does become more and more important. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think this feeds back into making people think harder about how they actually log from their applications? And you know, does do you think it makes them think? Right, I need a better standard when I log because when I when I write my application code that says you know write this this message out or whatever, to make sure that when this data does get fed into a, a central system, there is more useful value to you, to how you use it. A hundred hundred percent, yeah, and I, I think we're finally moving in the right direction of this. Um, I like to think of the best and most used log format is Syslog. I think. Somehow we got all the firewall vendors and pretty much every network device. It's not 100%. There's two RFCs out there that are, that are at least major ones. But all in all, here's Syslog. You've got a time, a priority, um, a message, and maybe some structured data in it. And I think finally application side with formats like OpenTelemetry, we're starting to move into... That arena uh, is it something that's going to come about this year maybe next uh probably not but maybe in the next five we'll get much closer to applications being very readily instrumented or outputting logs in a great schema that can be slurped up 
by any different system and, and then give you immediate insights on top of that. So I think we're moving towards it, but yeah, it's, it's a little slower than, than that. Yeah. So years ago when, when I first started work, I was in the mainframe area and uh, with the, in the mainframe, of course, you have a, a console, which just has a constant stream of uh, log messages going past and they're fairly standardized. You can pick out which ones are alerts and all the rest of it. And uh, as a systems programmer, I, I used to have to go and analyze some things that had broken or gone wrong. And the number of times I'd look at a manual and look, cause there's no online stuff then. So you look up the error message in a manual and it says, please see your systems programmer for details. And you think, well, that's me. I'm looking yeah. this up because I don't, because I don't know why, why, why haven't you got an explanation of it? And, um, yeah, sometimes messages, messages like that were a bit circular and not really very helpful. So I think anything that helps us to make sure that we provide structure in a message so we know how to interpret it, I think is, is very important. 100%. So what about, um, where you think we might go in terms of additional stuff we talked about ebpf do you think we're missing anything else else yet in in operating systems and you know infrastructure do you think there's other things we should be doing i don't know whether there's for example any sort of equivalent in the serverless world as to how we should be doing things like um log log, log management i just can't think of whether that's really practical or appropriate but there's there must always be something yeah you know serverless is is interesting i think it falls under that that SaaS side as well where now you're trusting, you're giving up some of the responsibilities that you have as an app developer on what you need to manage and, and take take care of. Um, and in turn, you lose some of the visibility or lose some of the ability to diagnose and troubleshoot. That being said, I, you know, now I think with serverless, you're able to basically log those functions or log uh, the output of those um, particular pieces into the large observability systems that are built into those cloud providers. So Google, Amazon, and Microsoft all having functions and their own observability systems you can click and, and send that data to. So I am seeing that picking up more and more. The downside is that's still very expensive. Um, right? If you're thinking of running 100,000 functions per second and each of those generating two to three logs you're easily hitting multiple terabytes or a couple thousand dollars in observability fees every you know every couple of weeks so that's something where this ability to use a format like open telemetry or logging via networking is useful because once you intercept it you can reduce remove uh, send it to a cheaper location like an Amazon S3. Um, and, and those are some of the value points that you know, Fluent Bid and the piece that's orchestrated by Cliptic Core can really offer um, by, by doing some of those things. Okay, let's talk about your company a bit more then because we haven't really sort of dug down into exactly what you offer. We talked about it to a certain degree. So are you selling a platform, a SaaS offering? How exactly would they come to you and, and use your tools? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So from Clipta side, our main product that we, we offer is called Clipta Core. Uh, this is a product that you deploy on your infrastructure. We support virtual machines, your existing Kubernetes cluster, or even your laptop via Docker desktop. And we have a cloud managed control plane that you register your instance with. And then from our cloud managed control plane, you can click on sources that you want to 
read data from, so things like Amazon S3, uh, or slurp in data from other agents like FluentBit or FluentD. Uh, and then you can route that data to one or multiple end destinations. So it really simplifies what you might be doing with FluentD or FluentBit, but provides things like one-click scaling, auto-healing, auto-load balancing, uh, and a lot of redundancies um, with buffering and, and automatic uh, settings. The other benefit that we include in Clipto Core that goes above and beyond the open source is what we call processing rules. And we've taken what the community has been building for a long time via what we call Lua rules, which is great scripting language used pretty heavily within HTTP servers or even games, um, if you're familiar with Roblox and Lua. And you can run a bunch of these functions uh, on top of those streams of data. So whether those are remove all debug logs or concatenate these five fields together into a single field, hash a field with a SHA-256 or um, add a unique value. We even support custom Lua functions. So you can write your own um, and, and put it as part of the pipeline. So that's something where you can somewhat do ELT, ETL in the midst of ingesting all that data with a few button clicks. Um, and that's been really powerful for our set of users who have always had the desire to go do these additional processing capabilities, but haven't necessarily had the tooling or the systems to really point, click, try, and, and deploy at scale without the assistance or requirement of an infra team or maybe even a DevOps team. We talked a lot about collections. We talked a lot about processing. We've not really touched on where this data is going to end up. So typically, what are people using to visualize the data or to do anything with it or to do or take actions on it? Yeah, I, I think this part is, is super interesting. Um, so again, we're very agnostic on where you send the data, but some of the trends we've been seeing have been users who have uh, traditionally leveraged systems like, um, like a Splunk or Elasticsearch or Datadog or New Relic adding on large data lakes like S3 um, as an additional end destination. And uh, for users who might be leveraging destinations like uh, old SIM providers, they might be routing data to multiple locations to kind of compare and contrast a new or next generation SIM. Uh, so there's a, a lot of fun stuff that's been, been going on there. And especially with like Amazon S3, what we're finding is users and, you know, are, are kind of getting fed up a little bit with uh, some of the costs that are coming with no additional value provided on, on some of these observability providers. So they send this data to Amazon S3, formatted in a way that it's super easy to search with AWS Athena, um, this, this okay. kind of run a query on top of terabytes of data and just pay for the query um, when you need it. And you're paying kind of the bottom of the bucket storage costs, right, with, with Amazon S3. And how would they, in that, in that scenario, would this be something you would do where, as that data ages out, would you be putting the policy in place to, to delete that data over time or thin it out or do anything with it? Or is it that normally done by the target platform? It's, it's normally done by, by the target platform. So we're more than happy to route data to any end destination where those policies already are in effect or... Uh, we can route to different tiers of different systems. So we can route to a, 
a hot tier or cold tier, depending on how the system is, is configured. But uh, generally, yeah, there'll be a user who sets up those data aging policies. But those are really important. Yeah, that's another great way to reduce. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, keeping data for, keeping data forever is great, but keeping log data for something that no longer exists and has disappeared and was de decommissioned ten years ago is probably not the most sensible thing to be doing. But you know, there's got to be some sort of policy at the back end there. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I I think we're if you think about like what developer logs look like sometimes where you accidentally hit yeah i want to put trace logs in and you push that to prod there's there's a ton of junk that can just make its way and um i, I think one of the unfortunate parts that we have right now is we're very very reactive when it comes to these cloud and observability costs and because we're very reactive those costs can i mean I, I, we've dealt with it ourselves as a company that has cloud services We've turned on trace and debug and piled up the um, cloud bills. And as those piled up, we went, wow, what, what is this? Why did, we, why did we send it? This is old junk. Um, and so if you can put in a protective layer like Core, that's, hey, by the way, I'm seeing terabytes of data, and that can, that can really make sure you're more proactive about this than, than reactive. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I remember in one job quite a few years ago now, we uh, we used um, a fiber channel analyzer to go and pull out the data so we could try and debug a problem. Well, it just records everything. So and the only way we could analyze it was actually to print it, which sounds completely crazy. Uh, and this is, you know, old style printing where the papers want sort of six no, about two feet wide, you know, the sort of the big, long straight chains of printing rather than individual paper sheets. And we printed off probably something that was about four feet high in oh terms my. of paper. Um, <laughs> but the guy who was doing the diagnostics went through it. He went through it bit by bit, page by page, and he mm. found the problem. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Kudos. Kudos to that person. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing, and we're like, wow! And and we went back to Cisco. It was a Cisco bug in um in their uh, MDS uh, fiber channel switches, and they went, oh yeah, we know about that. And we're like, oh, <laughs> you could have told us like a few weeks ago. We just, you know, never mind. Anyway, it just shows you that the power of if you get if you're looking for the right piece of data and you can find that data more, you know, in a more practical way, you shouldn't be having to wade through logs. You should be using uh, tools and policies and things to really make that work. Yeah, that's a, a great point. I think we, we talk a lot about optimizing cost or optimizing how you can reduce that, that data that you send. But one of the, the key points is like, if we sent everything to that gentleman uh, who found the bug with just one page, he would have found the problem immediately, right? Like he would look at the page, ah, here it is. And similarly here, like, if we just re reduce that noise, as you said, through policies or what, what other rules we, we might put in place, that will make your the, the end users, the folks who are actually doing the analysis and debugging lives much, much easier too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, brilliant. So like, you know, where can we point people to learn a bit more about your technology, your company, FluentD itself? What, what do you recommend people do in terms of going away and learning a bit more? Yeah, great, great question. So definitely reach out to us at Clipti.com. Um, you can contact us. We're happy to walk through a lot of the you know, observability strategy we see at uh, Fortune 10 banks, credit card processors, cloud providers, and 
how we can help you with, with uh, implementing some of those. Uh, on the open source side, I really recommend we have a lab. Um, it's free online, no download installation needed. You just click through. Um, that's on FluentBit.io. Um, and inside of our docs, you can see it'll be a sandbox. Um, so if you want to try it out, you don't really have a server to play around with, no problem. Uh, we talk through metrics, we talk through routing, we talk through reduction, we talk through um, how to send to multiple locations and tagging. Uh, so the very basics of, of FluentBit, but it's useful um, if you're interested in this type of area and see what the tools can do. Great. Anurag, thanks for your time. It's been great to uh, catch up with you again and um, have a conversation in a bit more detail. And, you know, let's uh, keep in touch and hopefully sometime in the future we can get an update and uh, talk again. Absolutely. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast from Architecting IT. For show notes and more, subscribe at hybridcloudpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Architecting IT or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Architecting IT. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.